Designing Freedom. Nineteen seventy three Massey Lectures by Stafford Beer, Professor of Cybernetics, International Consultant in the Sciences of Management and Effective Organization, Prolific Author in these fields, and Poet. In his first talk, Stafford Beer pointed to the incipient failure of our social institutions and gave us the scientific frames of reference for understanding this breakdown. Tonight, he looks at the technologies, especially computer and telecommunications, which have been abused and wasted by our institutions, thereby becoming sources of alienation instead of aids to an enlightened system of organization. The title of Professor Beer's talk this evening is The Disregarded Tools of Modern Man. Stafford Beer. If you were sitting under an apple tree and suddenly an apple fell on your head, to what force would you ascribe the event? Is there an apple-throwing monkey in the tree? Certainly not. The force involved is called gravity. Because we understand this force to be quite general on the planet, we don't propose to experiment when asked what would happen if we dropped the glass of water we are holding, or what would happen to an aircraft whose engines suddenly stopped. We reckon we know what would happen. And yet, the concept of a force which affects everything on the planet, regardless of what that thing is, and affects it to the same extent, so that a pound of feathers behaves just like a pound of lead for equal air resistance, is a very difficult concept indeed. How can there be a force which affects everything that you cannot directly experience, that finds expression only in mathematical terms, and that, counter to all intuition, treats feathers and lead the same? Come, come, you will say. This is to talk like an ignorant savage. Even a child can answer those questions. And besides, you can experience the force of gravity directly, because it is this force that your body measures when it senses weight. To this I reply, do you think you would have answered thus if you had lived round the corner from Isaac Newton in the year 1687? Our culture has had nearly 300 years to understand the problems of Newtonian physics. It had more than half a century to get its grip on relativity theory and the second law of thermodynamics, knowing that it is at least possible to make general statements about the physics of the universe. Not all of us, I dare say, would care to answer basic questions about these two, although one might have supposed that the culture would have imbibed them by now. The observed fact is that our culture takes a long, long time to learn. The observed fact also is that individuals are highly resistant to changing the picture of the world that their culture projects to them. I'm trying to display the problem that we face in thinking about institutions. The culture doesn't accept that it is possible to make general scientific statements about them. Therefore, it's extremely difficult for individuals, however well-intentioned, to admit that there are laws, let's call them, that govern institutional behavior regardless of the institution. People know that there's a science of physics. You won't be burnt at the stake for saying that the Earth moves around the Sun, or even be disbarred by physicists 
for proposing a theory in which it's mathematically convenient to display the Earth as the centre of the universe after all. That's because people in general, and physicists in particular, can handle such propositions with ease. But people do not know that there is a science of effective organisation, and you are likely to be disbarred by those who run institutions for proposing any theory at all. For what these people say is that their own institution is unique, and that therefore an apple-growing company bears no resemblance to a company manufacturing water glasses or to an airline flying aeroplanes. The consequences are bizarre. Our institutions are failing because they are disobeying laws of effective organisation which their administrators don't know about, to which indeed their cultural mind is closed because they contend that there exists and can exist no science competent to discover those laws. Therefore they remain satisfied with a bunch of organisational precepts which are equivalent to the precept in physics that base metal can be transmuted into gold by incantation and with much the same effect. Therefore they also look at the tools which might well be used to make the institutions work properly in a completely wrong light. The main tools I have in mind are the electronic computer, telecommunications, and the techniques of cybernetics. Now, if we seriously want to think about the transmutation of elements in physics, we will recognize that we have atom crackers, that they will be required, and that they must be mobilized. We shan't use the atom crackers to crack walnuts and go on with the incantations. But in running institutions, we disregard our tools because we don't recognize what they really are. So we use computers to process data, as if data had a right to be processed, and as if processed data were necessarily digestible and nutritious to the institution, and carry on with the incantations like so many latter-day alchemists. The invitation to face up to these realities is a necessary one if there is to be any real chance of perceiving the proper role of currently available tools. For it isn't something scintillatingly clever that I'm proposing, not a complicated new extension of mind-blowing techniques that are already beyond most people's understanding, not a big brother that will alienate us still further from the monstrous electronic machinery that by now seems to govern our lives. I am proposing simply that society should use its tools to redesign its institutions and to operate those institutions quite differently. You can imagine all the problems, but the first and gravest problem is in the mind, screwed down by all those cultural constraints. You will not need a lot of learning to understand what I'm saying. What you will need is intellectual freedom. It's a free gift for all who have the courage to accept it. Remember, our culture teaches us not intellectual courage, but intellectual conformity. Let's get down to work and recall where we were. A social institution isn't an entity, but a dynamic system. The measure we need to discuss it is the measure of variety. Variety is the number of possible states of the system, and that number grows daily for every institution because of an ever-increasing range of possibilities afforded by education, by technology, by communications, by prosperity, and by the way these possibilities interact. 
to generate yet more variety. In order to regulate a system, we have to absorb its variety. If we fail in this, the system becomes unstable. Then, at the best, we can't control it, as happened with the bobbing ball on our elaborated tennis trainer. At the worst, there is a catastrophic collapse, as happened with the wave. So next to something new, what is it that controls variety? The answer is dead simple, variety. Variety absorbs variety and nothing else can. Examine first of all the truth of that statement. Consider, for example, all the customers who are inside a department store. From the store's point of view, this represents an awful lot of variety that has to be controlled. You will notice how I use the word control. It isn't that these ladies and gentlemen have to be told what to do and made to do it. It is that when one of them wants to buy something, the variety of the customer store system goes up. A possible state has been made actual. The lady has chosen a pair of shoes, but she might have chosen a fruitcake. The store has to absorb this variety. Uh, there had better be someone on hand rather quickly to take the money and wrap up the shoes. Moreover, there will also need to be someone on hand to do the same for the fruitcake. But not for nothing is that store called departmental. There's a shoe salesman and a cake salesman. That is what organisational structure is for, to carve up the total system variety into subsystems of more reasonably sized variety. The customer who is not clear what commodity, if any, will meet her need, represents variety that cannot be trapped by this departmental arrangement. Her variety will be left over, not absorbed, if the store isn't careful. And we can see how this means that the situation is out of control. But if the store is careful, it will have an information bureau, which exists precisely to absorb this excess variety. Let's return to the shoe purchaser. We observe that she's becoming angry. This is because she can't get any attention. The shoe salesman is dealing with someone else, and four more people are waiting. The other shoe salesmen are similarly occupied. Temporally, at any rate, the situation is out of control, because at this moment the store has miscalculated the number of shoe salesmen needed to absorb the variety generated by the customer. Well, maybe you remember the concept we need to describe this affair and its name. The name is relaxation time. Variety is cropping up faster in this system than the system can absorb it, and this is bad from the customer's point of view. If it happens all the time, it would be bad from the store's point of view as well. The customer will desert the store, looking for somewhere with a shorter relaxation time. So the temporary instability of service in the store will become permanent, and at that very moment, incipiently catastrophic. The trouble with our societal institutions, of course, is that the citizen has no alternative but to use them. Only variety can absorb variety. It sounds ridiculous, but the perfect, undefeatable way to run this store is to attach a salesman to each customer on arrival. Then we could forget about those departments where the shoe salesmen are run off their feet while the girls in lingerie are manicuring their fingernails and absorb the customer's variety as we go along. 
For, you see, not only do we need variety to solve variety, but we need exactly the same amount of variety to do it. We were speaking just now of the law of gravity in physics. It's perhaps the dominant law of the physical universe. What we have arrived at in the departmental store is the dominant law of societary systems, the law of requisite variety, named Ashby's law after its discoverer. The example is ridiculous because we can't afford to supply requisite variety by this obvious expedient. We can't give every departmental store customer a salesman because we can't afford it. But you may already have noticed that in very superior and therefore very expensive special purpose stores, such as those selling automobiles or handmade suits, this is exactly what happens. In fact, you can't shake the fellow off. Nor would you be able to shake off your personal policeman if half the population were enrolled as detectives to spy on the other half. It's just because this is impractical that we have crime. We can't meet the demands of Ashby's law but we must come somewhere near it, somehow, or we are in for catastrophic collapse. How is this done? When varieties are disbalanced, as they usually are, we structure our organisations to cope. Fundamentally, there are two ways, and only two ways, of doing this. Remember, you can't repeal the laws of nature, and Ashby's law will exert itself. We met the first way in the last lecture. It is to reduce the variety generated by the system so that it matches the available supply of regulatory variety. You may recall the men we had sitting on the tall poles. This was their job. And I made a crack at the financial institutions for doing the same thing. I said they shot the cat that was generating variety by swinging the tennis ball. In other words, there's no way in which an insurance company can provide requisite variety for you, the unique human being. Your variety must be attenuated, cut down so that your case fits a more general case. In theory, you can get the entirely personal quotation that corresponds to having your personal salesman or your personal policeman. Just try it, I have, and see what the insurance is going to cost. Now, that's perfectly reasonable because the claim to be able to handle every citizen's variety is as ridiculous as I admitted my example to be. One trouble with our institutions is that they don't admit that the only full solution would be ridiculous and that therefore it isn't done. They should acknowledge, at least themselves, that they are satisfying Ashby's law by variety attenuation. And the reason they don't admit it is that it sounds bad in the ear of our culture. Our culture insists on the uniqueness of the individual, but our society can't live up to that. This is no criticism, it's a scientific fact. Our culture also insists on the absolute freedom of the individual, but our society can't live up to that either. That too is a scientific fact. Then look at the mess we get into by our pretenses. Instead of understanding the situation, and using science to do the best possible job of variety and attenuation under the guidance of the consumer and of the electorate, we spend vast sums of the nation's wealth, our wealth, on phony claims. On the consumer side, we put on the advertising pressure to pretend that full account is taken of the customer's variety, which is impossible. 
On the electoral side, we lose the freedoms we have when our variety is attenuated because we are not asked how the attenuation should be done. No politician would dare to ask the electorate that question because he is too busy standing for the inalienable rights which it is perfectly obvious we haven't in any case got. Nor can we have them. Let's look the facts in the face. The second method of satisfying Ashby's law is the one used by the department store. It would be madness to attenuate the customer's variety by stocking only one kind and one size of shoe, for example, or by locking her in until she was served. The alternative is to amplify the variety of the regulatory part of the total system. You don't appoint a single salesman, but many, and you do this by departments. In each of them, you try to calculate the statistical relationship between salesmen and customers so that the relaxation time is held steady. There are scientific ways of doing this, but they aren't often used. The amplification of regulatory variety comes in where one salesman handles many customers effectively. In societary systems, this is the preferable way to proceed because it helps to preserve individual freedom. We don't do it for several reasons, but only one is real. The others are subservient to this. Think of the outstandingly spurious reason first. This is the most obvious reason, the cost. And there are two things I want to say about that. First, the cost of a societary system is taken as its primary measure in our society, whereas the valid measure to use is variety. The cost is not what it claims to be, namely, the money that must necessarily be spent to achieve certain aims. In fact, the cost is whatever is provided in the way of funds, and this total available sum operates to constrain what we shall do within the framework we already have. If this framework is merely a joke played on us by history, so that its structure is outmoded and its relaxation time is too long, then the system won't work, period. The thing is unstable. We pour in money to head off catastrophic collapse. But that's a silly thing to do, because the money will, naturally enough, be spent in buttressing the framework, feeding in expensive variety to stop the relaxation time growing longer still, and making the instability actually worse. Think of all those poles on the tennis trainer. Second, the constraint of cost is entirely relative to the aims of society. The aims of society are, of course, a set of variety attenuators. We can't do everything we conceive as socially desirable, and our aims, our programmes, cut down the proliferating variety of societary choice. In so doing, the attenuator allocates the revenue that the taxpayer will bear. Once again, our culture prefers us not to look on the matter this way round there is a total plausible revenue. Come then, attenuate variety. Choose between developing a vertical takeoff aircraft, fighting a small economic war with the United States for the ownership of Canadian industry, and doubling the price paid for bureaucracy by having everything done in two languages. In the deathly silence I seem to hear following that solecism, I also seem to hear a faint voice, it must be a madwoman, crying, I would sooner have a 24-hour childcare service. Hmm, but that would cost money, and there is none remaining. 
Don't be ridiculous, madam. It's my prerogative. The point is that our variety attenuators are built into the system. Freedom of choice has gone down this particular drain. So what about the antithetical variety amplifiers? If the spurious reason for not using them is cost, the real reason is that it would mean redesigning everything so as to get rid of the built-in attenuators and install instead the amplifiers that could really work to achieve requisite variety, viable relaxation times and hence some sort of social stability. I've already suggested a list of three basic tools that are available for variety amplification. The computer, teleprocessing and the techniques of the science of effective organisation which is what I call cybernetics. Now I'm saying that we don't really use them, whereas everyone can assuredly say, oh yes we do. The trouble is that we are using them on the wrong side of the variety equation. We use them without regard to the proliferation of variety within the system, thereby effectively increasing it, and not as they should be used to amplify regulative variety. As a result, we don't even like the wretched things. If one of those unworkable institutions we were discussing buys a computer, what happens? It uses the thing, please note, at enormous cost, to do more elaborately exactly what was done before. And as we know, that didn't work. One famous computer manufacturer ran an entire sales campaign for its new series of machines on the slogan that you needed simply to transfer the existing system, whatever it was, lock, stock and barrel, to the new miracle machine. Well, that sounded good to the financial director, who had learned the hard way that immense costs are involved, yes, those same costs again, in implementing new hardware in software terms, but had not learned that the machine to do miracles is not yet invented. The effect on the institution was inevitable, to make the existing instability more unstable. It's obvious, really, once the concept of variety and the law of requisite variety are clear. The computer can generate untold variety, and all of this is pumped into a system originally designed to handle the output of a hundred quill pens. The institution's processes overfill, just as the crest of the wave overfills, and there is a catastrophic collapse. So, what do we hear? On no account do we hear, sorry, we didn't really understand the role of the computer, uh, so we have spent a terrible lot of money to turn mere instability into catastrophe. What we do here is, uh, sorry, uh, it's not our fault, the computer made a mistake. Forgive my audacity, please, but I've been in computers right from the start. I can tell you flatly that they do not make mistakes. People make mistakes. People who program computers make mistakes. Systems analysts who organize the programming make mistakes. But these men and women are professionals, and they soon clear up their mistakes. We need to look for the people hiding behind all this mess, the people who are responsible for the system itself being the way it is, the people who don't understand what the computer is really for, and the people who have turned computers into one of the biggest businesses of our age, regardless of the societal consequences. These are the people who make the mistakes, and they don't even know it. As to the ordinary citizen, he's in a fix, and this is why I wax so furious. 
It's bad enough that folks should be misled into blaming their undoubted troubles onto machines that cannot answer back while the real culprits go scot-free. Where the wickedness lies, and wickedness isn't too strong a word, is that ordinary folk are led to think that the computer is an expensive and dangerous failure, a threat to their freedom and their individuality, whereas it is really their only hope. There's no time left in this lecture to analyse the false roles of the other two variety amplifiers I mentioned, but we shall get to them later in the series. For the moment, you may find it tough enough to hear that just as the computer is used on the wrong side of the variety equation to make instability more unstable and possibly catastrophic, so are telecommunications used to raise expectations but not to satisfy them, and so are the techniques of cybernetics used to make lousy plans more efficiently lousy. But enough is enough. I expect you would be more interested to hear what can be done about all this than to hear more dreadful news. Then may I tell you that the next three lectures will consider constructive policies for handling variety. We shall start with the state itself. This is rather bold, but you will understand by now that I believe we are all captives of gigantic systems beyond our individual control, and we need to understand them. Because as long as we have any semblance of democracy, they are not beyond our collective control. Next, we shall turn to the only thing that matters, the individual. He and she, not to mention their son and their daughter, are enmeshed in all this machinery, and they have to get out. If science cannot join with politics and management to do that, I might as well be giving the messy lectures in that ominous year of 1984 instead of in the year of 1973. On that reckoning, we have 11 years, and frankly, that's about the limit. The third of these three next sessions will return to the central topic of the institution. And so, before I come to my last point, I will ask you, if you do me the courtesy of staying with these talks, uh, to think over a crucial question before we meet again. It is the central importance of the law of requisite variety. Please think it through. Think of any complex dynamic system. How is it regulated? It will certainly be proliferating variety. Isn't it true that only variety can absorb variety? How is it done? Do you not indeed find that in successful systems, systemic variety is attenuated, while regulative variety is amplified? It's usually a mixture of the two. I promised you that this stuff is easy once you break with the expositions and explanations dished out by the culture. The thinking I ask of you doesn't have to be done on some remote level of abstraction or at the highest level of state affairs. Cybernetic laws are universal. For instance, you might think over how these concepts of variety, relaxation time, stability and potential catastrophe work for and against you on the journey to work. You can do exactly the same exercise in the course of putting those high-variety young children to bed. Then think through how these concepts work in the big institutions of society that govern our lives. Ask yourselves how telecommunications, the telephone, television, affect those problems. Contemplate what you surely know about the role that computers play and see if they are working on the right side of the variety equation. Finally, if it's all so easy, talk over the problem as to how we manage to get it all so wrong. Then, maybe, 
you will see why I contend that there have to be some big changes and that they have to come fast before it's too late. Then I come to the last point, which I hope will help in these deliberations. If the law of requisite variety is to be handled intelligently, and not just by leaving nature to find the variety balance, which of course can be nasty for us humans, then it follows that the regulative forces must not only dispose requisite variety, which is a number of possible states, they must also know the pattern by which variety in the system is deployed. On the journey to work, we need to have enough options open. We also need to know the pattern of the highways, where they run, what the control points are like, what other drivers habitually do. In the process of putting the children to bed, we need several variety amplifiers at our command, but we also need to know, as we do, but let's make it explicit, the likely behaviour pattern of the children. Without these known patterns, proliferating variety looks even more threatening than it really is, which is bad enough. What I have been calling a pattern is what a scientist calls a model. A model is not a load of mathematics, as some people think, nor is it some unrealisable ideal, as others believe. It is simply an account, expressed as you will, of the actual organisation of a real system. Without a model of the system to be regulated, you cannot have a regulator. That's the point, and you can test that too. disregarded tools of modern man. The second of the 1973 Massey Lectures by Professor Stafford Beer. Stafford Beer is the author of five books, Cybernetics and Management, Decision and Control, Management Science, Brain of the Firm, and Platform for Change. Music